Have you ever told, I'm not good enough, or I don't deserve X, where X is to be happy, to get that job, to be in a happy relationship at your own? Why does one fall in the inadequacy trap? Have you ever felt inadequate? If you have, what did you do about it? How did you cope with that feeling? Did you rise above it? And if so, how did you do it? Join me after the intro for a conversation with a very special friend with whom we will answer this and many more questions. Stay tuned. Do you feel stuck in your life? Do you feel unhappy but not completely sure what that is? Do you hold a grudge towards someone for something they did which affects you and the way you live your life? Have you ever told someone, I forgive you, but in reality you were not completely over what happened? Why is it so difficult to truly forgive? How do we forgive? And can anything and anyone be forgiven? Hi, my name is Rosanna D, and I'm the host of the Forgiven Tribe Show. This is a safe and not judgmental place for sharing opinions and challenging experiences where the practice of forgiveness helped individuals to get unstuck and create a much more fulfilling life than they had before. Join me in this exciting journey to unveil how you too can have the life you deserve. Simply click the subscribe button below to receive notification about future episodes. to the Forgiven Trade Show. I'm a loser. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not quick enough or smart enough. I'll never be able to do that. I don't deserve to be happy. In an ideal world, we as human beings would always be confident and sure of ourselves. But in reality, even the most confident people in the world can sometimes find themselves struggling to cope with feelings of inadequacy. The situation is worsened in those who experience an inferiority complex or other self-esteem issues, which can be a consequence of traumatic situations. So today we want to talk about the feelings of inadequacy and despair that many of us may experience, how much they can affect us in our ability to embrace life, but most importantly, how we can rise above them. And we explore this topic in a conversation with today's guest, Valerie Erickson, who is joining us from Alberta, Canada. Valerie is an award-winning, sought-after public speaker and a public speaking development coach who believes that we connect with others through the stories we share. After experiencing a number of traumatic situations, she buried her emotions and hid them behind a smile. Hope was the key she needed to open the doors to forgiveness and transform from victim to victor, or thriver, as we call them here. Through her story, she hopes to lift others from the feelings of inadequacy and despair that she so acutely understands. Hi, Valerie. Welcome to the Forgiven Try Show. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Rosanna. It's nice to be here. Fantastic. Well, Valerie, I didn't mention on purpose about your story. The reason is because I want to start with you. And I want your journey to be told in your own voice by, by yourself. Can we start from there? 
Yes, we sure can. I, my story is probably not that much different than a lot of people's stories in the sense that of the feelings that it cultivates. But I grew up in an abusive home, but one that was also paradoxically a loving home. And that's, I think, what also leads to the feelings of inadequacy and loss of hope and all those feelings that you were speaking about, I'm a loser. But I was molested and sexually abused by my dad since I was, well, we block things out, as we know. And so probably my earliest um, memory is when I was six years old. So six years old going all the way up to 15, which is pretty old, yeah. And I'm one of five, so the four sisters, all of us, we were all sexually abused. And the story doesn't just end there. You know, predators, sexual predators and pedophiles are attracted to young children. And so my hope was when I aged through it, that it would go away. And of course, as I hit puberty, it stayed there. And then it continued on till I was 14, 15 years old. And as a traumatic, or a person that has lived through trauma like, such as this, you know too, and most people know that we block out our memories. So the interesting thing is, is a lot has transpired and I'm old now <laughs> and I'm still getting flashbacks. And a flashback is much different than a memory that you actually have still in your brain. So what happened was my dad was the abuser. However, we lived in an affluent home. We lived behind those, those painted walls that nobody could see behind. We were that family that sang together on Christmas Day on TV. We were that family that all went together and did all of our family stuff together at different celebrations. I never got hit not once. I never had plates thrown at me. I never got shouted at. I never got punched. So it's very confusing to a little kid when you're getting sexually abused, but not, not the other kind of abuse. It took me many years, like 30 years, to, to realize and understand that that is part of the manipulation. Because as a kid, I justified things like, well, but I've got this other really good part of the family. And because of that, and the way my father abused us, or me, is he would tell me things like, don't tell anyone, because you don't want to wreck the family. You don't want to ruin the family. So here's all the twists to all this. As he gets older, I, backing up a little bit, I was the, I was very shy, I, my family did call me the wallflower, which wasn't very nice, but that's what they did. I, I was the one that was kind of sit on the sidelines in sports and not participate really aggressively. So they were constantly saying, get more aggressive, get in there, get the ball. You know, I, and that le also led to feelings of inadequacy, like I didn't measure up in sports in our family. And I, I was the, I was just a, a goody two shoes. I was just a kid that just followed the rules. So as we progress forward, my youngest sister is the one that actually told our mother. And all of us thought that we were the only ones being abused, so we kept it a secret. Again, part of the manipulation to, for us to all not tell each other. And even though we're really close with the, one another, we didn't tell. We just didn't talk about it with our sisters. And so my younger sister did tell, 
and my mother, and you would think that she would have done something about it, but she didn't. Instead, it was, well, you don't want to tarnish the family name. We're big in the community, so don't talk about this. And for two years, he remained in the house. That's why, for me, it went on till I was 15 years old. My sister at the time was 12 when she told, and then when he finally did move out, he left when she was 14 and I was almost 16. So the thing is, why did he leave wasn't because my mom told him to go because of the abuse. He started to have an affair with an adult, and that's what got him to her to kick him out. So that's also plays horrible, horrible stories in our head. Like we weren't enough for you to make, to put action into. Like seriously, that it was just horrifying. So now we fast forward a little bit more. And then my, I couldn't handle the thought of him abusing other children because I really thought it was going to end just with his own kids. It's a different kind of pedophilia that you just abuse your own kids. But then I started figuring out through just little things that other little kids would do and say, like when we were baby, if I was babysitting, for instance, they'd draw pictures and it wasn't good. So I knew he was abusing other kids. And when he went to remarry, my parents eventually divorced. When he went to remarry, and I was in my young 20s, early 20s, he was marrying a woman that had three little granddaughters. And that's one of the catalysts that put me over the edge. And I actually, the shyest, the meekest of the family of five kids, was I was the one that went to him and called him out. But first, I asked my family family for their support, and nobody supported me. Nobody. They all said, you're on your own. We don't want our family name. I don't want our my laundry aired. I don't want the police to know. So I called him out. I called the police first, and I didn't give his name. And then I called him, and he denied it all. And I forced him into, forced his hand to go to therapy. I should have just turned him in, but I didn't. I was just the goody two-shoes girl. So I, I forced him into therapy, and he, did not, he pretended to go, and he didn't. So we had all this kind of altercation over the couple of weeks or a couple of years. And then he did go to therapy, and I was called into the therapist's office. And this is a very long story, but when he finally, he didn't really take responsibility for it, and he sort of did a little bit, but then Three weeks later, he ended up dead. And he, it was a suspicious death. Uh, he drowned, which didn't make sense. And so I, living in a different city, I went back there and I did some investigation. And then there's the whole black widow of his ex, of his um, new wife. She, this was her fourth dead husband <laughs> by mysterious causes. And everything exploded. So what did this do to me? Again, it's just affecting me personally and it's just making me feel worse and worse and worse and falling into a deeper hole of despair of what have I done and just not measuring up and all those feelings of inadequacy. I carry on that in my life and I find out (laughs) many years later that all along our mother knew and that's when I hit rock bottom. 
that our mother knew because my eldest sister, the youngest is the one that told, that I thought told, our eldest sister told when she was 12. And our mother did nothing about it. And uh, it, it had she, the rest of the kids, maybe one of them might have been abused, but the other two, myself and my little sister, we wouldn't have been abused. And so with that, how am I going to live? I realize, how am I going to live my life with all of this stuff and not be shrouded in this shame and this disbelief and this hate and this anger and this frustration that we have living this kind of trauma? And I learned throughout the years how to forgive and ultimately, ultimately defeat it, not let it define me, which is the big thing, and to eventually thrive. Well, uh, yes, this is quite a story. So first and foremost, I'm really sorry that you had to go through all this. Um, certainly for, for a child and a, and a teenager, already the situation is difficult in itself. And there is something you mentioned, don't tell anybody. Exactly. And it's incredible how much that sentence can affect you emotionally. It's not said in anger. It's just placed there in front mm -hmm. of you. And yet it then affects all your life, doesn't it? It sure does. And that's exactly true. You know, the, the part of the manipulation, which as a kid, you don't, you don't see it, you don't know it, but as an adult looking back, and if only we could talk to our younger self and say, oh, come on, you can see this. But we can't. These are just words. And usually the abusers, I shouldn't say usually, from what my experience is that they do speak. He did speak in very loving, gentle, calm voice. And one of the things he also said to me was, I'm going to teach you. And then he said the worst words to me, which was, trust me. So as a little kid, and these words of trust and forgiveness and joy and happiness and love and all those words, they're just, to me, words. Because, you know, you can say the word table, and everybody knows what a table is because you can physically see it. But you can say the words joy. And what does that mean? <laughs> For every person, it's something different. It's a set of feelings that only one person can feel. And I can tell you what joy feels like, but it might feel different to you. And so when he said, trust me, I grew up understanding that definition of trust must mean, like it doesn't make sense, right? To us, it wouldn't make sense. Trust means you can actually put your life and, and being into that person's hands. But he's saying to me, trust me. So my definition of trust meant not what it should have. It meant, listen to me, behave, be a good girl, don't tell anyone and everything's going to go okay for you. And of course, I later find out that one of the worst trusts that you can ever break for a woman is the trust between a father and a daughter, and that that's almost impossible to repair, which in my case, he passed away, so I'm kind of one of the lucky ones, <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, because on the other hand, you didn't have a way to completely uh, address this uh, uh, issue with him. You exactly process but you didn't have a chance to to finish it doesn't no sense. it totally makes sense because in the when he when I was invited into the therapist's 
meeting. We had the last meeting of the day. And I was kind of cocky and I was ready to, and me being a really shy girl, I rarely was that fighter, fight or flight kind of attitude. But that day I must have just thought, okay, I'm not going to let him get under my skin and I'm going to go in there. So I went in there and it ended up being a two and a half or three hour appointment. And the therapist just said, just keep going. And anytime my dad tried to deny something, he'd say, no, you say the truth. You've got to say the truth right to her. So we did get through some stuff. But one of the things he said was, you know, it's funny, Valerie. I remember abusing the other girls, but I don't ever remember abusing you. (laughs) And I said, in my snarky 20-year-old voice, well, isn't that convenient? (laughs) The one person that's sitting here in front of you with enough guts to call you on this is the one person. And I got all snarky. But he, um, you know, he, he just... He just passed over it like as if it didn't never actually happen to me. And I thought, oh, you, you are. That's when I really saw his true colors. But it, at, a couple years later, or um, maybe it was just before that, I guess, I had just had my first child, which was a girl. And unbeknownst to me, he showed up on my mother's doorstep with a gift. And he wanted to see her. And I, she was just a little tiny baby, little kid. So she was just behind me. And I said, are you kidding? And I remember standing up to him there. And that was quite brave of me to do that. But are you kidding me? I said, you're never going to see this kid. You'll never see this baby. And you will never, ever, ever, ever even hold her. And he he started to cry. And he, he said, I... I can't believe you wouldn't let me see her. And and that's when I kind of confronted him there too. So I did get a little bit more closure than none because I was able to confront him then and say, you know what, until you take responsibility and acknowledge, nothing's going to get better for you. And even when you do, you're still not going to see her. So, (laughs) And I kept that. Valerie, you mentioned a few things while you were talking about your story. For example, the behavior or the people pleaser uh, or pleasing behavior. That I think it's pretty common with children uh, who have been abused uh, somehow during the, the development uh, stage, and then they carry that forward in life. How much that has actually affected you as an adult, and how much of all this impact you had to look back and, and say, oh, you know what, this was caused by that? that situation it's an excellent excellent question it's really complex actually that question the people pleaser is some there's many people i mean i don't know what the percentage of people are in the world but you hear that a lot that she's a people pleaser he's a people pleaser and those are i believe i've done a lot of study on this stuff and taken a lot of psychology um uh, sessions for sure to help me through this but the people-pleasing is part of the limiting beliefs that we put on ourselves, some of that inner dialogue. And for me, it was always, if you were a good girl, well, my young mind, if I was a good girl, this wouldn't happen. My dad had a stupid, weird, dumb look on his face right before, almost like he was in a bit of a trance. It was like he had a, I don't know, it was like a sinkhole his face was a sinkhole you know he got this these loose lips and his 
tongue was weird. And I just knew that if I didn't do the right thing at that moment, that I could be his next target that day. And you're in a survival mode and selfishly survival mode, selfish, being that I'm a little kid and I didn't want it to happen to my sisters either, but I really didn't want it to happen to me. (laughs) So I would find myself bringing all my uh, schoolwork to the kitchen table to make sure I was always in other people's view. And so carrying that on into my adult life, it never really goes away. I've had to learn that, and I learned this, I, I made a decision when I was about 17 years old that I was not going to be defined by this. But it wasn't as easy as just, oh, think, oh, today I'm just going to make this decision and not let it define me. It was much deeper than that because I had to acknowledge that it was there and really figure out why I had, was being affected by it personally. Like what was actually happening when I wanted to be that people pleaser. And the, the catalyst came when... Here, let me back up for a second. One of the things my dad did, so we lived in a giant house. Uh, There was six bedrooms and all the kids' bedrooms were on the bottom floor with windows, two windows that looked out onto the golf course, our golf course. So one of these days I was in grade probably six or seven because I was doing a (laughs) school report on a book called Jean Valjean. The phone rang. And back in those days, the phone was hung on the wall. (laughs) And I don't know about it with you, but when the phone rang, it was a big deal. And we'd all scream and yell, I'll get it. And it was a race for the phone. (laughs) I won that day, which is weird. But I did. Picked up the phone. But this is what was on the other end. Heavy breathing. A man in a raspy voice saying, well, how are you today? Really creepy. Valerie, because we, we had to be very polite. Like I said, we were brought up very affluent. So we had to be, good afternoon, this is Valerie, blah, 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 speaking, right? So I, he already knew who I was. And then he said, how was your report on Jean Valjean today? And I'm gobsmacked. I'm, and he's whispering. I should say it more like this. How was your report on Jean Valjean today? And then he said, do you still have the pink panties on and that freaked me out my face went completely probably my face went completely white whatever my face did my older sister my closest sister ran over to me and she's pointing and I'm holding the phone out for her for us both to listen now remember I haven't told her that I'm being abused she hasn't told me she's being abused but both of us have this had this inner dialogue that we could or inner communication that we could communicate without talking and we're, we still do that. And she, um, she was pointing to the phone and mouthing the word dad. And I, said, and I nodded, yes, I think it is, without saying anything. And he said, you still have these pink panties on. And I, 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 I didn't say anything. And he said, with that pretty little dress on that you had when you went to school. So I hadn't, I hadn't engaged in this conversation, but... And it was a long time ago, and I think is that is probably when I hung up, because I remember the conversation ending, my sister and I just looking 
absolutely shocked at each other. And then I ran downstairs to my room and immediately I look at these two windows and I cover them up with towels and I jump underneath my covers and I take off all those clothes <laughs> and put on other clothes and threw those away. And it absolutely devastated me because now my, my world of just being abused, I know that sounds awful, but of just being abused just changed because now he's crossed a different line. Now he's creepily stalking too and watching me to know what I had on to go to school that day. So that was creepy. Wow. I know. <laughs> How do you uh, continue from, from that? I mean, uh, it, it's um, quite interesting, the uh, aspect of this uh, complicity between you and, and your sister who were sharing the same sort of experience but without telling each other, without knowing about the, the other person. But perhaps something was in the air, right? Uh, you, you felt that both of you were experiencing the same situation, the same trauma. Yeah, I felt it. I, I could see it on their shock and faces and their behavior, but I never believed that what he was doing to me was what they, he was doing to them. I, I just thought I was the only one. And then when we've talked about it after, my younger sister, she said the same thing. I thought it was just me. I knew he was being weird with you guys, but I didn't think he was abusing you. Same thing with my other sister. And my eldest sister, I mean, there's five of us. So my elder sister ran away when she was 14, 15 years old. My second sister, she kind of buried it and um, just doesn't want to have to deal with it. My brother is in complete, like, huh? What's going on? What? <laughs> and then there's me that I went to counseling, which helped immensely. Oh my gosh, immensely. I'll never forget my very first free counseling session with the sexual assault center. And then my younger sister, she, uh, she went off the rails. She was the one that, well, her, well, her, her name was on the bathroom wall. So she went off the, off the rails and really, really divorced our family for like 34 years. It was really bad. So we all dealt with it differently than one another. But the catalyst that got me to get through this move towards what I call forgiveness, again, another word that how do you really define forgiveness in terms of feeling. But one of the catalysts was when I was, um, oh, grade 12, 11 or 12, our basketball coach had us all in his car, well, six of us in his car going to a tournament. Nowadays, you could never do that. <laughs> but back then, there wasn't a bunch. I'll jump in. Okay, we'll go with Mr. Rogers, if you can believe it. His name was Mr. Rogers, like that TV, like the little TV show with kids. But anyway, he, he was a little bit um, flirty with a lot of the girls. And what he decided to do, can you imagine Rosanna doing this now? But ugh, never. But he decided to go around the, the, um, the, the girls in the, in the truck and decide if they were virgins. So he's, <laughs> right, yeah, a bunch of 16-year-old girls. He goes around and he says, okay, blah, blah, blah. I think that you are not a virgin and you lost your virginity last year with so-and-so. And then he'd go to the next person. I think you are a virgin. Da, 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 da. Then he, got, he goes around and he saves me to the end, which was suspect to me. 
what what being abused has made me is I'm a really good Nancy Drew sleuth. I can I can see things behind me, beside me, <laughs> all over the place. And I knew right away when he skipped over me and saved me to the end, I was like, mm, this isn't going to be good. And so he said, now you're confusing me. He said, you, I think you're not a virgin, but I don't think you lost it to a boy. And I thought I was going to die in that moment because all my friends are all looking at me like I'm, there's something <laughs> wrong with me. But I remember in that moment, I thought, holy frick, he is defining me as a, basically calling me out as a sexually abused girl. And I'm not going to be defined like that anymore. And I had to, that was, it was sort of that, that moment that I went, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to, I'm going to change something in me. And that was my defining moment. It took me a few years to figure out how to do this. But what I remember, the, one of the first things I did was I thought, no way. Nope, this is not going to be the, the me the rest of my life, the girl that was abused. So I put my shoulders back and I put my head up and I thought, huh. And so I said, <laughs> I said to him, as, a, as remember I was shy, so I said to him in as calm voice as possible, I said, no, I've slept with boys. <laughs> Not very convincing, I might add. <laughs> but anyway, that was that was the start of my, hmm, I guess we'll call it recovery, rebuilding. I'd rather call it rebuilding, really. Yeah. yeah. How do you think uh, that have, has affected your relationships uh, with, particularly with men, later on? Because... Unfortunately, we're abused. There is the cycle that we go um, into. And sometimes people that have been abused become abusers. Yes. Uh, hurt people hurt people, uh, as, as they say. Uh, other times, they know of the abuse as familiar situation, and they end up recreating somehow the same situation in life. So they go from uh, an abusive father, like in your, in your case, for example, to an abuser husband or an abuser mm -hmm. boyfriend. What was your relationship there? Okay, so this is excellent. I love this question. Because I am a person that just gets stuff done. I've, I was good in as a good student, and if I had homework, I just came home and I got, I got shit done. So I did that. So I know that statistic from growing up. And that scared me. <laughs> so what do you think I did? I hopped, I had already gone to the Calgary, oops, <laughs> the, sexual, the sexual assault center and learned a few things. But when I went, when I, when I was pregnant, actually, and I was, um, no, actually, no, it happened before that. When I was falling in love with my current husband, who was my first, also my first husband, been married 35 years, that scared me because of that statistic. So I march myself off into a psychologist's office and I say, okay, here's the thing. The statistics say that I am going <laughs> to, now what am I going to do about this? And again, when I was pregnant, I said the same thing. Statistics say I'm going to abuse this child. I'm terrified. What do I do? He was awesome. He said, no, DNA does not dictate what happens to you. Yes, past experiences can if you allow it. He said, do not allow it. 
be strong, be a warrior. You can even tell by my change in voice right now. It's I got that fight. I got that fight. Like, there's no way. There's no way. Shoulders were back. My head was up. I was like, okay. He laughed. He said, this is the fastest. Like, I was in and out of there. and like, okay, I'm ready to go. In 20 minutes, I'm out. And he's like, we still have 40 more minutes of your hour. <laughs> I said, I don't need it. I'm, I'm good. Because I needed that reassurance that, no, this is not written in our DNA. It is a choice. My dad was abused poorly, sadly, as a child by his uncle or his older cousins, one or the other. And it was horrible. However, that gave him no, no, nobody forced him. Nobody had his hand, take, took his hand or his body and forced it onto mine. He did that and he made that choice. And when I learned that, it was so powerful, Rosanna, that there's nobody, if they get in my way now, that is going to win because I'm kind of like a little wrecking ball. If anybody crosses me or my children, <laughs> I am a pit bull now. But I wasn't. I was just a little tiny weeny little mouse before. Yeah. And so also, so how it has affected me now, my husband, i got to give him a lot of props for hanging with somebody that is has these hang-ups like I do. Because when we first started dating, he was excellent in that he was... Um, he was similar in personality to me, so he wasn't a really aggressive person. So there wasn't that expectation of um, of sex or uh, deep, deep, deep type of physical contact, which was perfect for me. He didn't know anything about this. But then the poor guy, I don't know how many months into our relationship, he said a trigger word. One of the things my dad said when he had this stupid sinkhole look on his face was he'd say, well, son of a gun. He'd, and it's just a catchphrase that people say a lot, but he'd say, well, son of a gun. And he said that on that phone call with, when he was stalking me on that phone call with the Jean Valjean project, he said, well, son of a gun. And it's in a certain tone, well, son of a gun. So I knew that. Well, my then boyfriend was sitting on the couch. We were watching some stupid Monty Python show. Sorry, everybody out there, but I don't like Monty Python. <laughs> I do now, but I didn't then. And, I, and he's, I said, yeah, I'm not really into this kind of humor. And my boyfriend said, well, son of a gun. And I, it, it wasn't good. I, I felt like there was a massive crevasse that just opened between us. I separated us on the couch. I made up an excuse and I fled. And I went back to my place and I never wanted to see him again. And then I realized, wait, hold it. No. This is not me with my shoulders back and my head up and zipping up my confidence. This is not that fight valve that I wanted. Like all of a sudden I went back into victimhood. I went back into being defined as an abused person. I thought, no way. So I took the bullet, bit the bullet, and I, a few days later I said, okay, I need to, <laughs> the dreaded words for a man, we need to talk. <laughs> we need to talk. So I... <laughs> I said, we need to talk. He's like, oh, God, oh, no. And I told him. And it was one of the most freeing experiences because I hadn't told anyone. I hadn't told my sisters. I hadn't told my mom. We we'd, we'd now had known about it, but I hadn't told anybody. And so and not even the psychologist. I didn't go through any details. Of, I just said, yeah, I was abused. They filled in blanks. So I actually told him. And that's a huge move because two reasons. One is... I spoke it out loud, and for some reason, when you speak things out loud, they become more 
authentic and more real, more, yeah, they have more power. But the other rest is he's a guy. Remember, I was told I won't have trust with a man ever again. And so here's this man that I am trusting with these innermost feelings and what he was going to do with them, that's me at my finest vulnerability, what he was going to do with them was up to him, but I bravely did that. And luckily for him and me, <laughs> he, he handled it really, really well. And he said, oh, well, that was then. So now let's just move on now. And he didn't dwell on it. He's been patient the whole way through. I am everyone's burning question, now that I do talk about it, but... Any, everyone's burning question is, okay, so how's your sex life? Uh, because they think, you know, an abused person might be closed off or whatever, and I'm not. So everything is healthy. It's good. We've got a really good relationship. He's not abusive in any way. And if, if he steps out of line, <laughs> I knock him back into line. Like if something crosses the line with me, like, nope, 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 that doesn't, that's hurting the trust issue again or something like that. And we have two great kids that are also healthy. And no, I didn't abuse anybody. And a lot of that came from that understanding from the psychologists when they said, no, just because you've been abused absolutely does not mean you're going to be, be an abuser. The statistics, the stats are there, but it doesn't, it's not inbred in our blood that this is what's going to happen to you. It's our decisions. Just like with any other abuse, you know, alcohol or, I know alcohol is a touchy subject, but alcohol or, or physical abuse, no one is forcing, no one, unless someone is actually, you know, forcing your throat open and pouring this stuff down your throat or holding your hand and, and punching someone, usually it's not a, a, um, for a DNA thing. It's a, it's a decision. It's a powerful decision to have to make or to an urge that people have to abuse someone else that they have to fight themselves to pull it back but it's still in their control. This is very powerful. I mean, what you're saying is something, we are not broken. And I think that is uh, something that everybody uh, needs really to understand about uh, abused people. We are not broken. We went through a very tough situation, perhaps more than one, perhaps it was a uh, routine uh, kind of situation for us uh, at that particular time, but we are not broken. And with the right people, we can absolutely thrive and, uh, uh, and behave in a very uh, healthy manner without, uh, not just physical, but without any uh, response, emotional response that is uh, similar to the ones that we might have had during mm -hmm. So um, thank you very much for, for stressing this, uh, this point. I think this is uh, uh, very, very important. And I think, you know, not broken. You've said that is so good that you, you paraphrase that, that because it's true. We're not broken, but it can break us. Oh, yeah. Right. It breaks us. We get that. And I was repeatedly abused to the point where I, like I say, I blocked out so many, many things and it became somewhat routine. But it, it did break me, but yet we're not broken. And, and that's that whole limiting the belief. It's, it's the inner narrative that we tell ourselves. If we tell ourselves we're nervous, every time we get on a plane, we're going to be nervous every time we get on a plane. If we tell ourselves we are broken because we were abused or because my so-and-so passed away or, or did whatever, we will become what we are. Our minds are so powerful. They are what they believe us. They're not that smart to not believe us. 
our minds, actually. And if we tell ourselves that we are broken, I can't trust a man. I mean, think of the narrative that you and I could be telling ourselves and probably did for many years until we figured out how to move past it. But we could be saying, I'm a loser. Uh, and probably were. Uh, no one can, I can never trust again. I'm broken. No one's ever going to want me. I've said this a million times to myself. Uh, no one's ever going to want me. I'm used. I'm used and abused. I'm, I'm dirty. I'm worthless. I'm, I'm nothing. And I won't be ever, ever able to be, I'm weak. That was, oh, that was a huge one for me, which is how, how I got some of that fight back. But I'm weak. I'm meek. I was told I was a wallflower so many times and to be more aggressive. And so I constantly told myself I didn't measure up. And that's part of that feelings of inadequacy and then just despair's lack of hope. I just gave up for a long time. Like, why even bother? But right, like the dis- despair is that for me, it's that lack of hope that then anything's going to change. And I felt that for many years. And even though I was a teenager when I made that decision, I had su- I wanted to kill myself in my 20s. I had suicidal thoughts for sure. I did not want to go on because the, the pain, the, the difficulty and the challenge of overcoming this seemed like an insurmountable mountain. And I didn't know if I wanted to go down that road. And I thought it's just so much easier if I just offed out now and just like be done i'm really glad i didn't <laughs> absolutely but i can notice a, a difference between your story and my story because you had somehow a way shortly after it happened to talk about it to release some of the pressure in my case i didn't talk about that for more than 35 years uh, that happens a lot to a lot of people and I, it happens to a lot of people so Sometimes we have that feeling of inadequacy, but we don't realize why. I completely buried everything that happened at the back of my memory. And it only was a few years ago after I burned out, I was in therapy because of the burnout. And then one day I turned blue and I I got completely tired. My hands were in a fist and I I couldn't release my, my fingers. It was quite a shocking situation to be in. I was sobbing and crying and oh. my therapist just, she obviously, oh. she knew what to do, but it took a very long time just to calm me down. And then that was the moment when a, f- a few memories started to reemerge. So it, it was really only three and a half years ago that I started the, the process. And now I, looking back, I can see how many times I had this feeling of not being good enough, but I wasn't quite sure why. Right. You know what I mean? Wow. Yes. And so, that is powerful. That happens to a lot of people where they don't even know they've blocked it out so much and they don't know why they feel so low or low self-confidence or esteem. Absolutely. absolutely. So wow. talking... I think the first lesson learned from this conversation would be really talking is a must. Take everything out with the right person, not with everybody, but with the right person so one day they can trust. And that that stops people though, right? So because they don't want to talk, because they don't want to be judged, they don't want to be. And so what I've said to people is, what is the worst thing that's going to happen if you tell somebody? The worst thing that's going to happen is they're not going to believe you and who cares? Because you know. 
And that's the first thing is when you can say it even to one person, regardless of the other person's reaction, because most people don't know how to react, that verbalizing it out loud is your very, very, very first step. And acknowledging yourself that regardless what the other person says on the other end of hearing it, I mean, that's why you do want to go to a, in air quotes, trusted person, like a, like a, somebody that is equipped to handle this type of information. But the worst thing that could happen if you went to a psychologist and told them what had happened is that you, there was no resolution in that exact moment. Like nothing bad is going to come of telling a trusted person and speaking it out loud. One of the ways that I dealt with it was I started running, exercise running, and it became a metaphor because I was running away from problems, but then I realized, wait, I'm running to freedom as well. So I started doing exercise and running. And I like you though, Rosanna, I sound like I handled this when I was 17 years old. I did not. I went along my whole life, think my whole adult life believing one thing. And it wasn't about until about same as you, like three or four years ago, that when I found out that my mother knew, that that is when I hit the very, very, very rock bottom. I went catatonic. I couldn't speak. I I realize now it was a form of a nervous breakdown. My I shook. I couldn't believe that my entire life was basically a lie that she knew all along. And that's when I was faced with a great big, huge decision on what to do about it. And that's where the true forgiveness started happening. I'm interested in that journey into forgiveness. How was for you? Okay, so because forgiveness is one of those words, again, that doesn't really have any, it has a definition in the dictionary, but it's a set of emotions that you don't know. One of the things that happened to me when I was being abused is I blocked out all emotions. I didn't know what love, sure, I knew when my kids were born and when I fell in love with my husband, how it was supposed to feel, but I didn't feel anything. So I assumed, well, that, I guess that's what, same with that trust, right? I guess that's what love is. I guess that's what that means. I didn't realize I was actually blocking and protecting all of those feelings of joy, love, trust, all of that. And when my, I found this out that my mother had um, known all along and did nothing about it. And this is my mother, my I, we were tight. We were really, really close. Like I said, we were a really close family. We did everything together outside of that. And even when my dad passed, we all broke, came together to support each other with, with the trauma. And also my, you know, my mom that's now, well, she was already single, but still she was alone. And it devastated me. And I realized then that I had this decision of how am I going to manage it. And so I asked myself one thing, what good is going to come from me carrying this horrible burden that has absolutely rocked me to the bottom? Like I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't, couldn't do anything. I didn't eat for 10 days. I didn't speak. I didn't sleep. I, didn't, I thought, is this the way I'm going to live the rest of my life with this betrayal following me around like a cloud over my head like Eeyore or strapped onto my back like a heavy backpack or something and I knew that I didn't want that I had this happy marriage with the happy children and I didn't want to have this information drag me down and weigh me down like an anchor so that is when I learned how to forgive 
But forgiveness, we all know that forgiveness is not about the perpetrator, but about us. But I knew it was more. And so for me, it was more anyway. Because of the lack of what is forgiveness and, and what does that really look like and that whole lack of trust and what does that actually look like, I realized I needed to start with acknowledging what was real. Really making that decision to take a few, step back, a few steps back and look at the bigger picture and ask myself what good is going to come of me carrying this with me and learn how to actually let that go. And that's when I was able to get to that place of, wait, forgiveness is about releasing it from us. It's not, for, it's not saying, hey, it doesn't matter that you knew all along and did nothing about it. It, it matters that, wait, I'm not going to let that wreck my day, define me, get into my head every single time. So I started changing the narrative in my head. And that's part of just what I started doing in my younger years, too, is changing that narrative and thinking of the positive things, celebrating all things positive. I used to weigh out the, the wins. Is this a big win or a little win? Oh, if it's not a big win, then it's not worth it. Oh, it's a little, little win. That nah, means nothing. No, you have to celebrate everything. And then when you do that, the positivity starts to rise and your confidence starts to rise and paying, being, having gratitude and giving thanks to little things, just, it's sort of like you only have this, you know, this much room and the more confidence and gratitude you have, the less negativity you can have. You've only got room for X amount and you can push it out of there. And that's what I kind of visually did that same thing with my shoulders back, my head up. I imagined this, it was my heart actually, I imagined my heart full of all these things, I didn't even know if they were feelings or not, but I would just slowly push them out and just squeeze them out with a positive inner dialogue, um, telling myself that, no, you are worth it, actually. You are great. And so remember I said when I went to this sexual assault center, it was quite life-changing. The girl said, and they listen, and they've heard so many horrible stories. She said, tell me some good things about yourself. And, I, and I'm shy, so I didn't say anything. She said, okay, when you go home, I have homework for you. She said, go to get a little book, a little booklet with a nice little picture on the front. And on the first page, write down all the bad things about yourself or all the good things about yourself. On the second page, write down all the bad things about yourself. So I did that and I went back for my next week. And in the first page, I had two things, good and I practically filled three or four or five or six pages of the negative. And when she showed me that visually and made me read them out loud, that was that whole, oh my gosh, I'm in victimhood. I'm being, I'm, I'm a victim. And I mean, we are victims, but we don't want to live in that victim mentality. And so she taught me how to change that narrative and start looking at just simply by taking the negatives and turning it into a positive and just seeing if that fit for me. And that was huge, huge. I still do that. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a good exercise for, for everybody to do. When, when you were just mentioning this, these things, I, I was thinking that you are a public speaker mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, in your life and also a coach. You, you help others to become public speakers. How much this experience and the journey that you went through 
the discovery of forgiveness and letting go and gain your uh, your freedom through forgiveness how much that impacts you in the way you coach others or when you are talking well what if i told you that in 420 seconds you could leave here different 420 seconds is seven minutes, and that's usually the length of a lot of people's talks. We all, every person in the world, have stories to share. I was shy, so I took public speaking so that I could just be better in my business. But what emerged is my own personal stories that I've got, that I realized how powerful the stories are and what impact they have on others to help others. And I have used my stories in all of, not necessarily these, you know, these uh, sad, morose ones, but I use personal stories in all of my talks and my coaching. I life coach people through grief and, and um, abuse and, and those limiting beliefs. I do life coaching as well as public speaking coaching. But every single time I'll have a personal story in there because that's what people connect to. Stories connect us like you and I, right? Stories connect us so much. And when we can learn how to tell a story with that inspiration and that fundamental key message that you want the person to take away from, in this case, you know, learn learn how to release and let go and move on, then, then we can have a huge impact on others. And this whole, my whole life has been, I could say, uh, this is one of my mantras. I could say, poor me, I was abused. Therefore, I have a hard time trusting others. It takes me longer to build relationships with and friendships with people. And I don't necessarily believe that I can accomplish anything I put my mind to. I could say that because that's all true. Or I could say, which is what I do say, I am passionate because I was abused. I am compassionate and I'm a very good mother because I was abused. I have a very good heightened sense of what is right and wrong because I was abused. Do you see how I've taken that narrative and I've taken all of that negative and I've went, wait a sec, I'm not loving that I was abused, but damn it, I was. So what am I going to spin it and get good out of it? Well, I'm going to learn like, well, what did that te teach me? There's no one that can walk behind me now. <laughs> No, without, without me knowing who's back there. Like, I'm very aware. And perhaps that has saved me throughout my life. Perhaps I have saved other children from abuse when I have been able to catch someone's eye and they know I'm watching. And maybe it stopped something on the other end. I don't know. I'll never know that. But those are how I have taken that and spun it to help me and change the narrative to help me live happy and not be a victim I don't and I still get into victimhood every once in a while I'm sure we all do but now I know I have the tools to get myself out of them because I don't want to live there I don't want to live in that anger I can't imagine living my life waking up every day angry frustrated hating life when we're only on this world for such a short time instead of finding the positive like damn man this is good. Valerie, if you had your younger self in front of you, what would you tell her? Oh, there's so many things. That's such a great question. There's so many things I'd tell younger Valerie. Some of this comes from 
the psychology sessions I've been in. Some of them is just me, what I would tell. One of the things I would tell younger Valerie is that you're not alone, that you do have safe people around that you can talk to, and that you are, that you do matter, that your voice does matter, and that you do make a difference. And from the psychologist's point of view, one of the things I'd tell myself was, I've got you. You're stronger than you think you are, and you can rise above this as long as you face it and acknowledge it and are ready to fight for it because you're worth it. Wow, that's really, really beautiful. I absolutely <laughs> love that. So for all our listeners that <laughs> may be in a darkish place right now, listen to this, what would you advise them to do? What would be the one first step that they can take right now to rise above that situation? somebody's listening and they're feeling really, really in a dark, sad place, the first thing for them to hear is that they are not alone. There are people out there that truly will help them. The second thing is, is they are way stronger than they think they are. To stand up and put your shoulders back, put your head up and zip up like a zipper, like take from your toe, even visually, don't just think it, do it. Bend down, zip up this zipper from your toes all the way up to the top of your head and zip in all of that confidence and get outside and take in some, some air and breathe and make that decision of acknowledging of this is where I'm at, this is where I want to go. Because we're all on a path and some of us are spinning in circles and we're going around. But if they, if you and you're listening and you're thinking, but what can I actually do? Put one foot in front of the other. Make a plan. Even if the plan that day is just to get off the couch or get out of bed. Mark it down. Put a check mark next to it. Yes, I've done it. The next day or the next hour whatever. Make the next plan. And then maybe that is to reach out to somebody. Reach out to a psychologist, reach out to a life coach, reach out to somebody that will just listen to you and help you. Because when our minds are so full of this despair, it's very, very, very difficult to sort things out. And that's why other people can help you. And the, and the biggest thing is, is you've got this, you're, you're the one in control. No one can force you to feel bad about yourself. It's all your own decision. I hope that would help some people. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. Fantastic, fantastic advice. I love it. Valerie, I would like to come back before concluding to uh, back on you and uh, ask you what you have in the pipeline, uh, if there is anything that you would like to share with us uh, about what you do. In, uh, Thank you. In Thank you. So, yeah, actually, I've got a few things in the pipeline. The one is I do coach public speaking and and on people learning to tell their stories. And from that, you find you do find that you can rise from the ashes and you can take your story to help others. And that's empowering in itself. The other thing is I am writing a memoir and I have done my yeah, I've done my first run through, which I wouldn't even call a draft yet. But I'm very excited about it because this This book is this part of my life, and it is hopefully going to help others find the light and find their way and to lift them out of those feelings like I had for so many years of being inadequate and being not enough and not measuring up and just being a horrible person and 
lifting them out to realize, hey, wait a sec, I'm in control and I've got this. And that's what I'm doing is I'm writing the memoir. Beautiful. Let us know when uh, that is out so perhaps we can organize another chat. Oh, I'd love it. And uh, where people can find you if, if our listeners, for example, would like to know a little bit more about you. Uh, oh, okay. They can find me on my, my website, which is valericson.com. That's the easiest way to find me and reach out to me. Fantastic. And we will put the link in the description of today's episode. Final question before uh, leaving. If there was one take-home message that you would love everybody to remember from this conversation, what that would be? Learn how forgiveness plus acknowledgement will actually bring you freedom and set you free and be your catalyst for change, your fuel to change. I think that would be it. Well, the hope, and just, just that is the hope, the hope that if they can learn that, that they are going to be okay and that you are going to be okay. That's absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, I hope that this episode has provided insights and inspiration on how much feelings of inadequacy and despair can affect us in our life and still opportunities away, but also that we have the power to change life path. And I wanted to leave you with a beautiful quote from Louise Hay that says, remember, you have been criticizing yourself for years and it hasn't worked. Try approving yourself and see what happens. Valerie, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and for being such a love and a joy to, to talk to. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, we would like to know what you think about this topic and how and how much do you value yourself, really? Let us know, get in touch. Also, don't forget to check Valerie's website and to follow her on social media. We will put all the links in the description of today's episode. Hopefully not, but if any of the questions and any of the conversation that we had has triggered some feelings in you and you feel affected in any way, please, as always, I invite you to seek professional help. Join me next time when we will continue exploring inspiring and challenging situations. Because remember, we are together in this journey. Remember, forgiveness is like a muscle. The more you practice, the stronger and more effective it becomes. If you haven't done it yet, you can subscribe by clicking the subscribe button below. If you know anybody who could benefit from the topics discussed in this show, do some good and share the link with them. If you have a story that you want to share with us, comments or suggestions on topics you would like to be explored, send me an email at forgiventrive at gmail.com. Reviews will also be very much appreciated. And with this, it's a wrap. Till next time, thank you and goodbye.